Yeah, we're 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 gathering we're gathering evidence against you. All right, here's here. Let me show them. Here's our new technology, and Scott's going to help me with this so that people can hear one another, and I don't have to repeat every time somebody says something. Yeah, right. This is a karaoke deal. No, then you can talk into here. So there's the man with the mic. No, we already. I already told him Dan doesn't get need one. Well, yeah, amplify Dan maybe wouldn't be a good idea. We'll just take him as he comes. Okay. All right. Yeah, we love you, Dan. Okay. Here we go. We are in. Hebrews 11 and verse 25. Now, again, we finished part of this verse, and I have a couple more cross-references. Um, talking about Moses, choosing rather to endure ill-treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And I don't know if we said this last week, but this is really a, a very good gospel verse. And people might as well realize this, and when we're preaching the gospel, there, there's nothing wrong with laying out the terms. Because people believe the gospel when God removes the veil through the Holy Spirit. And they don't come to Christ because it looks like a good deal. uh, They come to Christ because God graciously softens a hardened heart and brings someone to Himself. So, there's nothing wrong with sharing the terms and consequences of the gospel right up front. And in fact, not only nothing wrong, we ought to do so. Now, the fact is, that if you do, this is just a watershed thing. And I don't think it's ever been any different. To believe God and come to Him on His terms is choosing to endure ill treatment with the people of God. Amen. In some regard. Amen. Because it will never be that the true people of God who, will, who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to be popular with the world. Never has been. The, the, Jesus warned about it, about loving the world or about the world loving us. And if we speak the truth, we'll be treated just like Jesus Christ, which in the world rejected Him. But on the other hand, uh, what are we giving up uh, for this? Well, to enjoy the passing pleasure of sin. And, it, and it's emphasizing here the temporary nature that the things the world has to offer. Uh, maybe somebody could look up... Uh, 2 John 4, um, no, 2 John 2, 14, 16. I'm doing this from memory. 2 John 2, 14 to 16, does that look right? No, 1 John 2, 14 to 16. Yeah, that, that couldn't be right. 1 John 2. That's what I meant. Yeah, I want to talk about the lust of the ice, lust of the fresh... Flesh of private life. Go ahead, Keith. Do not love the world of the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is of the world, but the flesh, the flesh, the eyes, the flesh, the flesh, the not the Father. Is that on? I didn't hear anything. I didn't get a signal. He was just testing me a second time. Okay. I thought it was me here. Okay. No problem. So what did it say? All of it is in the world. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh. The lust of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Okay, and then what does it say after that? The world is passing. 
passing away, and also its lust. But the, but the, yeah, so the world is passing away in, this, in the lust thereof, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. So people that hear the gospel need to realize they're laying aside their former belief and motivation, which is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And these, this is like, these are three big categories that summarizes all that's in the world. Everything that somebody could possibly imagine would be worth living for if you don't know God. If you're not really uh, regenerate and you don't know the truth, then this is what looks good. And it may be different for different people. It may be money, pleasure, power. I mean, there's different ways you could categorize those three things. What was one of them? Pride, pleasure, and possessions. Yeah. If a little acrostic, or what, no, not acrostic. What is it when it all starts with the same letter? I don't know. Okay. Three-point sermon. Three-point sermon. <laughs> a clever three-point sermon. Power, pleasure, possessions. You, you could say it that way. Power, pleasure, possessions. That, that's something we could, we could uh, live for conceivably. But Moses' choice to suffer ill treatment with the people of God rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, that is, being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he could have had it all. He could have had all three of those things uh, that, that John talks about. And, but he chose rather to suffer, and by doing so, uh, becomes a great example of what faith is like. What is valid faith? What is saving faith? It's faith that, that uh, is in God, that's willing to come to God on His terms, and which results in a life that's remarkably different because God is at work changing us. And we're willing to lay aside the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life in order to do the will of God. Now, doing the will of God may be costly. Okay, let's try it again. How, how are we doing here? Get them both going one way. Check, check. Check. Yep, there we go. Gotcha. Okay, uh, Pat, could you read Acts 20, 23, and 24? When you get a chance, and then Noel 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 10. Oh, that's awful long, isn't it? We'll all turn to that one together. Never mind. Uh, <laughs> no, we can all turn to it, but you can read it. Okay. <laughs> I, I knew you had it in you. <laughs> okay, Acts 20, 23, and 24. Twenty-three and twenty-four. Paul's address to the Ephesian elders. Except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, seeing that bonds and afflictions await me, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the, of the grace of God. Okay, so Paul says that he didn't consider his life dear to himself, that he might finish his ministry and testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Then 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 10. So 
suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he completes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of all those who are chosen, so that they may also, so that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Okay, thank you. Yes. Um, here comes the man. Okay. Now, so that was 2 Timothy 2, 3 through 10. Paul is willing to endure all things. Notice what he says, for the sake of those who are chosen. So he believed that there were people out there that God had chosen who will believe the gospel if they hear it. And so Paul is committed to that uh, preaching and proclamation at all costs, even imprisonment, because the gospel can't be imprisoned. And whatever hardship would have to be endured to get the gospel out is well worth it, because there are people out there that God's going to save. Well, what we've been reading then says that there's nothing that we have to, there's no promises we can make in this life that your life is going to be better relatively if you accept the gospel, at least in this life. If, if that's the case, then does it follow through that if somebody tries to, you know, wants to become a Christian for what it does for them in this life, it wouldn't be true Christianity. It couldn't be true Christianity because the only benefit of Christianity truly is in the next life. Yeah, okay. I agree with that. And as a matter of fact, it may be that somebody will become a Christian thinking that it's going to make their life better, but they'll find out pretty quickly that it doesn't. And um, and I think that's part of what you see with the parable of the sower and the seeds. Remember that parable? That some somebody some people receive the word with joy, and it looks like they're excited and they're going to be just excited, wonderful Christian. And what did it say? What does it say? The trials and persecutions come. Yeah, the cares of this life, and they real find out that it really wasn't what they imagined, and they just fall away. They they leave. They don't stay. Stay. Um, in this life, though, isn't the the peace and the rest and in, in, in assurance of the promise? You you have that in this life. Yes, we what we have in this life. Several there's several things. What is a good question? What does the Bible say we have in this life? Number one, it says if anybody lives brothers, sisters, fathers. Whatever in this life, um, for the sake of the gospel, shall receive in this life fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters with persecutions and the age to come eternal life. So what that means is that if we're persecuted and rejected because we proclaim the gospel, family doesn't want anything to do with us anymore. God gives us a gospel family. Amen. And this is the, the real unity of the, of the body is the fact that we have something in common. We know Christ. And the brothers and sisters that God gives you in Christ a lot of times will be there for you when your own family won't be. Okay? And that and that's a very real thing, and it should be that way. And secondly, what else do we get? You talk about peace. Well, we get whatever 
comes from the fruit of, uh, and work of the Holy Spirit because it says we have the down payment, the earnest of the Holy Spirit. So having received the Holy Spirit, we have many blessings and benefits, a foretaste of glory. We have peace that passes understanding. We have joy even in the midst of circumstances that should give us sorrow. And many times uh, we just see the supernatural power of God carrying us along when we wouldn't make it by any other means. Uh, yes, Dean. I, was gonna say, I don't mean to uh, contradict Keith because Keith is usually pretty right on the money. Well, you never know. But but I think there are some benefits about being a Christian in this life is you make godly decisions. And when you make a godly decision, you don't have to pay the consequences. Okay, Let, let's discuss that. If, if They do talk about that in um, when they study missions, uh, what they call social lift. And that is that Many times when people become Christians, you're right, they start using wisdom and making more godly decisions, and so there's less, they suffer less consequences of their own stupidity or their own self-destructive behavior. That may happen, and we're not saying it doesn't, but we're saying it isn't guaranteed that everything will go better. Okay? You may end up getting a better job, you may end up having a nicer house because you showed up to work, whereas when you weren't a Christian, you didn't show up. How many of you know all the work in the world is done by the ones that show up? I mean, there, there are things like that that definitely happen, but there's no guarantee because many people like, like Moses here, he had to just keep his mouth shut and he, and he goes into Pharaoh's household and he opens his mouth and he, he suffers with a bunch of slaves out in the wilderness, I mean in Egypt, and then he has to take them out in the wilderness and they don't like him. So what we're saying, there's no guarantee of the, that everything will be better in this life, but there is a promise of eternal life. There's a promise that Jesus said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Therefore, I shall not fear what shall man do unto me. And there's the promise that God will care for us. And the Lord's Prayer talks about what? What are we even asking? What are we expecting? Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. And uh, a few basic things like that. We're not... Asking that if we become a Christian, we're going to be better off than everybody around us. Yes. Yeah, they want to hear you back over here. This is a detail that uh, it says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That is of benefit. There are so many benefits. I think it's a little flip to say we don't have things in this life because uh, we may not have a place to live or place a roof over our heads. We may not have a job. We might not have health. Uh, but those are such temporal things. We have such eternal things even in this life, I, I, I think. Amen. Amen. That is everything. Um, I was going to read a quote from Lane. Now back to Moses. So the, what, what this discussion is based on is Moses' choice being exemplary of a person of faith. And his is probably the most radical one anybody made that, that we know about other than Christ himself coming from glory to suffer. Philippians 2. Is that he can be the Pharaoh, potentially, and be the most wealthy, powerful man on earth and have it all. Or he can go out in the wilderness with a bunch of people that don't like him. <laughs> what a deal. Such a deal. 
And But he chose rather to suffer affliction with people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Now, here's a, a quote from William Lane. In, in retelling the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, Josephus uses similar expressions. Josephus was a Jewish historian. Joseph chose rather to suffer unjustly, even to endure the supreme penalty, than to seize the pleasure of the present, upon which indulgence he knew he would be condemned by his conscience justly. That's what Josephus said about Joseph. So Joseph has something that looks pleasurable and he runs from it because of the integrity that God put in his heart. And he ends up going to jail for doing the right thing. So there's another person of faith in the Bible. Um, It talks about uh, these examples serve to illustrate the vocabulary of verse 25 where the moral choices between the present enjoyment of pleasure and the present mistreatment for doing what is right. So, a uh, very good point. I think Joseph serves the same illustration. He, he was mistreated for doing what was right. But yet he's also a, a great example, as far as the Bible's concerned, of a person of faith. Okay, so we looked at Timothy and Acts. Paul was one who was willing to suffer for the gospel. And Moses was willing to suffer to be a person of God. Now let's go to Hebrews 11:26. Okay? Do you have does somebody have something? Did you want to say something? Okay. I see that hand. I'm sorry. Okay, Dan. You know, you talk about joy. I got to be honest with you this morning and not only was I excited to come here, I just couldn't wait to get out late. I worked late last night and got up early. But when I got in the parking lot, I was super excited to talk to Dylan, what God's doing to him. He's an Indian that was out front here one time, dying of cancer, homeless. And God worked a miracle through people praying for him that he got well. And I'm excited, real excited this morning because I got to talk to Dylan because I've been giving him a lot of tracks and people, many people around here have helped him. And he's down in Rochester. And I said, How you, what are you doing in tracks? He says, I'm putting them on windshields. But the latest thing, one of the first things is a doctor giving them, heck, a Hindu doctor. And, you know, they got a lot of karma. And later on he apologized because he's passing out tracks because he's, he's testifying for the Lord indirectly. But this time he got a chance to really stand up. A nun asked him, what are you doing down here? Because they allowed him to pass out tracks. First of all, everybody that's going to Rochester usually sick or got some real problems. Now, here this little Indian guy looks like... Uh, a mess. But God bless him. The nun says, what are you doing? He says, I'm passing out these tracks. People are sick. They're dying. They, they, they need to hear about Jesus. And she says to him, maybe they need to hear about Mary. Maybe they need to hear about Mary and Mary can help. And he says, no. He says, I don't come to Mary. He says, he, she says, let us pray. He says, no. He says, maybe I should pray for you because Jesus is the way. Here this little homeless Indian. That was dying, got a testimony. That's what I'm excited about, what God can do. Take a homeless man, give him a home, and testify who Jesus Christ is. I'm excited. What are you doing? There's the religious state world today. Where's joy in that? I tell you, the joy is that your testimony about Christ. You'll never have greater joy. You'll be suffering, but you'll have joy. Jesus said, rejoice in this, that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Yes, recorded in heaven. Yes. See, Dan, we didn't need it for you. No, <laughs> Good, that's okay. You know, going through this, uh, 
uh, this chapter of faith, you know, when you said that and that you alluded to Joseph, you know, the devil works in the same methods he's used since the garden. And it just came to mind to me that when you said that, that the devil tempted all those other saints where he tempted Christ directly, where, you know, he says, if I offer you all the kingdoms of the earth, well, mm -hmm. Moses turned down the kingdom of Pharaoh, and mm -hmm. Joseph, you know, the story went with him. But, you know, the different in thinking through in thematic form, that that's the way the devil tempted those guys indirectly. Offering, he tempted, the, offering the world. Yeah, and he tempted just like Christ he directly. So yeah. I just thought that might be mentioned to tie that up. As a matter of fact, uh, Larry, the temptation of Christ covers those three categories in First John 2. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. You know, turn the stone into bread, the lust of the flesh. I showed him the kingdoms of the world, lust of the eyes. Jump off the temple and have the angels catch you and make a big scene in front of everybody. Pride. And so Jesus resisted all temptations. And it says in, in Hebrews, he was tempted in all things, in all ways, as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus, so the, the, the temptation is to take the world now and neglect the gospel. Now, Jim. Maybe I was just thinking loud before. Okay. <laughs> Maybe that's what it was. But I was thinking because you mentioned something about Joseph, uh, about something that God had put into his heart. That that was the, was the reason, and I think really the main reason is what God has done for Moses and for Joseph and for all of his children, us Christians today, is something he puts in our hearts. And that is where we're able to make the right choices, and that's where the things that will be put in front of us and where the ability to resist, uh, resist temptation is all from the hand of God. Right. So that was the where I wanted to point out what really struck me about this was the activity of God in all of these men. Even though it's talked about their men of faith, it's all the activity of God and what he's done. And to give him the glory for all of those things. And even when we fall into those problems and things that there, it's just God that has uh, enabled us to make the right decisions that does get us in trouble with the world. Yes. Uh, it's grace alone, faith alone. Now, there's a chapter of Hebrews that's going to help us with that. And it's called, in this chapter 12, the next one that we'll get to one of these months or years. And when we get to chapter 12, we're going to find out about the Lord disciplines his sons. So he has a means of helping us from falling. Yes. Amen. I think we need not forget the Hebrews opened up with the Hebrews opened up with that it was Jesus is the expression of what we actually have our faith to because it's easy to get uh, bamboozled by people who are willing to give up everything for something that's false because there's a lot of sincere people that you'd say everything to. The right. Dalai Lamas, or I don't know the... <laughs> Dalai I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with a, a guy now who's uh, given up his job, he's given up his uh, reputation so he can serve in things that are, I don't think are true. And he's sincere and he's, he would say that he's part of this this process, right. but he's following a different kind of Jesus and it's not the one that's in the, the, the opening right. verse here. Okay, I agree. All right, now let's, let's look at our passage, Hebrews 11.26. Considering, now this is talking about Moses' the process by which he did this. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Amen. Crazy. All right, how was it that Moses was considering the reproach of Christ? 
Seeing how Christ hadn't appeared on the scene of history yet. Yeah. So let's let's think about that. How could Moses consider the reproach of Christ? Okay, mystery. Okay, the Word of God, that's okay. I'll just repeat that, it was a short one. Brian? How God gives some people the uh, uh, prophecy, uh, things to, to come in the future. I wonder if God can have people see things that were of the past. Yeah, so I think you're, that's, you're hitting on it there. Because of the prophecy and the promises in the Old Testament were promises about Christ, Anyone who believed those prom- those patriarchal promises like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's promises, or even back to the seed promise to the woman, anybody that believed those promises was seen as believing in Christ ahead of time. And anybody that went and offered a lamb on the Passover in faith was accounted to believing on Christ because the lamb was pointing forward to the promise that God would send a Savior, a Messiah. And so, this is based on the Hebrew idea of corporate solidarity. And so that the faith that they have transcends the centuries, transcends time, and anybody who would be attached to these patriarchal promises in faith is believing that in the seed of Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's believing that God would send Christ. Why would that apply to Moses? Well, if Moses is going to attach himself to these people, why would he do that? Why would he call himself a Hebrew when he could be the son of Pharaoh's daughter? Because he had to have believed that the promise that God gave Abraham was true. God told Abraham that his descendants would be serving for 400 years in another country. And that afterward, they'd be brought out with many possessions, but that God would judge the country they served. Now, somehow, that has to be part of this faith. That, that, uh, that Moses really believed that what God told his great-great-grandfather, however far back you got to go, how many generations, Abraham, that that promise was true. Because why attach yourself to these people unless you believe they were people of promise? And the promises included the seed. So therefore, by believing, he is believing in Christ, the one who ultimately fulfills all the promises made to the patriarchs. They're fulfilled in Christ. I think we may have something from William Lane on that regard. He says, like Christ, Moses exchanged the joy he could have had for the endurance with the people of God. The reproach he incurred was endured for the cause of Christ in the specific sense that he identified himself with God's people, sharing their hardship and contempt because he was looking ahead to the reward. Looking ahead to suggest concentrated attention. So it was his habitual stance. Moses deliberately turned his attention away from the present sufferings to the future reward. His faith consisted in emphatic refusal of the present, visible rewards of status, and a certain expectation as 
of the as yet unseen but enduring reward bestowed by God to which only he could look ahead. So he's looking ahead to a reward that had been promised and the promise had been made to the patriarchs. I think the faith of Moses is much like the faith that we have today. He was looking forward to Christ. We're looking forward to Christ's second coming. Right. And that definitely ties together with what we're learning in Hebrews. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. So we, if we have this faith like Moses had, then we are believing the reproaches of Christ are greater reward than the pleasures of sin. And we're believing that we need to look forward because this Christ whom we haven't seen and do not see, we believe in him who we haven't seen. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. That he really is seated at the right hand of the Father. He really did pass through the heavens for us. He really did shed his blood for us. And he really is coming again. And then one day we'll be reunited with him and all the saints in the Merry Supper of the Lamb. All of this is unseen. And if we tell our non-Christian friends about it, they would say, that's what you're living for? Amen. Praise God. That's, that's, what do they say? That's pie in the sky. That's just pie. <laughs> it's a good, very good pie. We've had a little slice ahead of time. It's pie in the sky. Well, but, but that's literally true. Paul, as I mentioned last week, Paul says if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. We are a pitiful lot staking our eternal life and promises if they aren't true. I think it's kind of exciting that Moses is not unlike we are. I mean, we, we read the Scriptures and all the characters in Scripture. We kind of think of them as being super Christians. They're not unlike we are. And God used Moses in a mighty way. God can use each and every one of us. Amen. In Absolutely. Amen. The, in, uh, that's sort of like what Jim was saying. People of faith are people with innate moral, moral superiority to everybody else around them. People of faith aren't, somebody, aren't people that somehow pulled on their own bootstraps and made better choices than everybody around them. They are people who have had um, a confrontation with God, and God has come into their life by faith through grace, and God takes ordinary, fallible sinners and transforms them Amen. into people of God. Yes. I think there's an interesting thing too here because this at this point was before God met Moses in the burning bush. So again the parallel you're talking about Moses is looking back at this time for the reproach of Christ. He's looking back to the promises that God had objectively given to Abraham and the patriarchs in the same way that we have written promises for us we can look back to and it wasn't something that was based on Moses' direct contact with God at that time. Okay. Let's get to some verses and maybe we can just go from one to the other to the other here. Uh, we'll start with Jim and just pass it along after you read the verse. Jim, Psalm 73, or 37, 16. 37, 16. Diane, Psalm 89, 50 and 51. Larry, Isaiah 51, 7. Linda, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Carla, Matthew 5, 11 and 12. Keith, Acts 5.41, Stephen, 2 Corinthians 12.10, Karen, 1 Peter 4.14. And you know what? There's some other ones. Uh, Linda, I'm going to give you Hebrews 10.33-35, and then we'll discuss how it applies to these, the situation of these people. Okay? Uh, Psalm 37.16. 
Better is a little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. <laughs> there you go. Oh, that's right to the point. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. Absolutely true. Okay, Psalm 89. Remember, Lord, the reproach of your servants. For how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. Okay, so by associating with the people of God, the psalmist is bearing the reproach of all of the people of God. That was Psalm 89, 50 and 51. Okay, so it's bit, What's that? Isaiah 59, 7. Yours is 51, 7. Oh, 51, 7. Okay. Let me just back up here. <laughs> 51, 7. Hear me, you who know what is right. You people who have my... Loins and your your planets your okay. People who have my law in your hearts do not fear the reproach of man or be terrified by their insults. Okay. So if you have God's law in your hearts, don't fear the reproach of man. So this idea of reproach for, for believers is a pretty consistent theme. Okay, Linda has Jeremiah nine, twenty three and twenty four. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Wow. So what's the only thing we should boast in? (laughs) That we know the Lord. (laughs) And then, and ultimately, we're boasting in Him because it's His grace that we know Him. If God did not choose to reveal Himself to humans, nobody would know Him. Amen. Okay, and then, Carly, you had um, Matthew five eleven and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So there's this continuity of the people of God from Old Testament to New, that there's this continual reality of people of faith being at odds with the world. Now, the Bible says that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. There's an inalienable, or irreparable, I should say, there's an irreparable conflict between God and the sinful world. And the two can't be resolved until God resolves it at the final judgment. But until such time God comes and squelches all ultimate rebellion against him, there will be a continual and unending conflict. And as long as that's true, as we live in the scene of history, to be allied with the world is to be God's enemy. And conversely, to be included in the people of faith, this big corporate solidarity of all the people that believe God, to be in this family of God and believing the truth of the gospel is to be on the wrong side of the world. Amen. And that's how they're going to treat you. That's what it says. Okay, and then Acts 5.41, actually it's about the same thing. I'm going to read 40 and 41. And they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame. For his name. Wow. When I was 
just thinking what we call the world, at least in the scriptures in, in the New Testament, most of the time the opposition wasn't from the secular world. It was from the world religion of, of the non-Christian posing as, as Christian, or the, in this case the Jewish. That's what the whole book of Hebrews is about, is the attack from the world of Judaism that wasn't Christian. It's not necessarily the, the pagans that gave them the most grief. It was the, the people that were pretending to be saved. That's true. Most persecution ends up being religious. And even amongst the Romans, ultimately when Christians were being persecuted, it was because they offended the gods. They refused to burn incense and swear by the genius of Caesar and whatever they required them to do, burn incense to the gods. And according to um, uh, Tertullian, they uh, blamed Christians for natural disasters. They said that the reason uh, the Tiber overflowed his banks or whatever, he has a famous statement, he says, the Christians to the lion. Uh, uh, well, uh, they thought that the gods were causing natural disasters, and they were doing so because they were angry. And who was angering them but these Christians who refused to serve them? So if we kill the Christians, the gods will be nicer to Rome. So again, it's religious persecution. Uh, we have the same thing today with the religious persecution of the churches saying we don't want the gospel. Oh yeah, we people are getting kicked out of their church. Did anybody catch Joyce Harley's show? We were talking about this on the radio um, Friday. Yeah, um, but we were talking about people having to go to their pastors and beg them to preach the gospel. And in, in many cases, the pastor says, well, if you keep this attitude, you're going to have to go. How dare you want the gospel preached in this church? What's wrong with you? I think these last couple verses on your computer when you start reading the emails that come in because of some of your articles. Just send them back. Yeah, send, send them the verses. Yeah. Okay, the next verse was 2 Corinthians 12.10. Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, I am strong. Well, that verse is a good foretaste of what I'm going to preach on today. We're going to preach on the Jacob-Laban um, uh, narrative, which ends up with Jacob wrestling with an angel. But when Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm, in, then I'm strong, that's something Jacob had to learn the hard way. Okay, um, 1 Peter 4.14. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. All right, you're blessed because the Holy Spirit rests on you if you're reviled for the name of Christ. And then the passage, let me give a little background to the passage Linda's going to read. In Hebrews 10, 33-35, it's talking, trying to encourage these people that are tending to backslide by calling them to remember what they had to do earlier in their Christian life when they believed the gospel, and it's telling, giving them some exhortations. So go ahead and read it. I think I should start 32. Okay, go ahead. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly why you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me <clears throat> in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering 
of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Okay. Thank you. Um, The reason I wanted Linda to read that section is that it's a perfect application for us. All right. How does he apply it? He, he, he talks about it in chapter 10, and then he gives examples of people who did what he asked these people to do. When they had believed the gospel, they, they accepted the plundering of their goods. They accepted mistreatment and ill treatment. They were willing to suffer reproach. They were willing to be attached to this people of God and take their lot as our lot, even if it meant being despised by the world around. But he called them to remember that. Because they were being tempted to try to go back to their former friends and not have to go through all this persecution. All right? So that's exactly what was going on. And what happened was, uh, he gave them this exhortation. In 10, 1035, what was it again? 1035 says, uh. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence. Okay. So there, yeah, that's the therefore. Here's our application. Do not cast away your confidence. Now, what did that mean? What does it mean to cast away your confidence? Well, your confidence in the finished work of Christ. Your confidence in the promises of God. Your confidence that this is well worth it. That whatever the price may be, that the glory and riches of Christ are greater reward than anything anybody could ever take away from you here. Amen. And so when it says don't cast away your confidence, it's in that context. And it isn't just talking about how to win friends and influence people. I mean, there's, there are certain people just by nature that are full of confidence. You know, basically any 18-year-old male. <laughs> I, can drive, I, can drive, I can drive 200 miles an hour. I'm not going to get hurt. You know? um, that's why they, they go in the army, you know. Run into that bunch of bullets they're shooting at you. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right. So, I mean, you can have confidence just because you're, you know, whatever. Uh, but that isn't what this is talking about. It isn't saying, you know, boost up your confidence so you're a strong person. It's saying don't throw away the confidence you have in Christ and the value of the gospel and the, and the exceedingly great reward of being a part of the people of God, whatever their lot may be. Uh, that is the confidence that we don't want to throw away because it has a really great reward. And when people have confidence, what they're, what they're tempted to do is to go back to whatever they had in the world because it looks like, you know, this, this Christianity thing really isn't doing anything for me. And that's a tragedy. Uh, Carla. I was just thinking um, that, you know, to the, to the people that the Hebrew, uh, the author of Hebrew was speaking to, he was speaking to all of these Jews who had come out of a tradition of how you know 500 years, and all of their peers were still alive and still uh, participating in the whole Hebrew Old Testament faith, and and he was encouraging them to believe in Christ and to not to not lose their confidence in everything that they were saying about Christ in light of the fact that this whole tradition and all the weight of that was still there, right. um, you know, tempting them and, and criticizing them for not for letting go of that, but to stay true to this new 
faith right. that that we believe in. Right, and the temple was still there, yeah. probably, in all likelihood. And so they could see the glorious temple services and the high priests and the animals and this tangible, popular religion in comparison. I remember my, one of my teachers, Dr. Versaput, who is a fabulous, uh, one of the best Bible teachers I ever sat under in my life. And he said, to understand some of these kind of passages, just imagine this. There's a little bitty ramshackle poor church sitting here in this corner with few people going to it. And there's this big, magnificent synagogue bustling with people. And the people in the synagogue are saying to these little ragtag fellow Jews who are going to this little church, so what are you doing? What do you got going for you? Do you claim you have this uh, high priest in heaven? Where is he? We can't see him. We'll show you our high priest. Okay. And so there's a real temptation. Why not join what seems to be prospering rather than sitting here suffering with these people that lost all their goods? That's, that's literally what was facing these very early Hebrew Christians. And so, as you were saying, Carla, the, the old Jewish friends who hadn't become Christian are saying, no, we have Moses and the this is all ours. This is our continuity. And you've given that all up. But the author of Hebrews saying, no, you didn't give that up. You actually stepped into the faith of the prophets. You've adopted the faith of Moses and the faith of, of Noah and the faith of Joseph and anybody else like that because these all, these were willing to suffer afflictions because for the sake of the promise of Messiah. So that, that's very, that's very good. That's exactly what was going on. Alright, we go, let's go to verse 27 here. By faith, now we're still talking about Moses here. By faith, he left Egypt without fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured seeing him who is unseen. Now we brought back up this whole topic of seeing the unseen. It's introduced in Hebrews 11.1, faith is the evidence of things not seen. Well, what are the, what, what in particular is not seen? Christ. So it says Moses' faith was that he saw Christ who was unseen. How could he see Christ who hadn't yet appeared on the scene of history? In the promises to the patriarchs that one would come who would crush the serpent's head. Um, The Messianic promise. Now there's a dispute about the interpretation of this passage that I, I need to tell you about. The question is which leaving is is the author of Hebrews talking about? Because if this is in chronological order, then Moses, when he came to understand he was a Hebrew, chose to attach himself to the people of God. And then we know what he did, killed the Egyptian. And then he fled Egypt. And then he doesn't come back for 40 years. And then there's another leaving with the people at the Passover. So the question that commentators bring up is, well, is this, is this verse 27 talking about the Passover leaving, or is it talking about the one when he fled for 40 years? Now, the reason they even bring up the question, because if you would assume it was chronological, and this must be the first leaving, but how was that leaving in faith? Because it didn't seem like he was leaving in faith. So, again, um, our wonderful William Lane to the rescue here. I, I, his, his reasoning is so, um, 
incisive. And um, but he's. He says the deduction, and they did not fear the decree of the king, is virtually a parable in form and content of the factual statement of verse 27 that Moses left Egypt not fearing the rage of the king. Both the beginning and the conclusion of the unit on Moses as a young man, the writer emphasizes the role of faith in overcoming any fear of the king. This is the key to the interpretation of verse 27a. Moses did express fear when he knew his violent action had become public knowledge, Exodus 2.14. But by faith he overcame his fear of reprisals and left Egypt, finding in faith a substantiation of hopes as yet unrealized and events yet unseen. The emphasis upon faith overcoming fear is indicative of the pastoral intention of the writer. In other words, this is another way that these Hebrews can relate to Moses. That Moses having faith didn't mean that Moses was utterly fearless. But he overcame his fear through faith. And he didn't give up his faith, even though there was a delay. And he meets God again uh, later and God reveals himself to him and he comes back and then they have the Passover. And so I, I, with Lane, would agree that we just take this in the chronological order and it may not seem like faith to us, but it was faith overcoming fear. Amen. Yes. Okay, if I understand this correctly, the first time he left Egypt, he left in fear. And I think many of us would have done the same thing under the circumstances. But his faith was built. He returned to Egypt and led people yeah, out. I would, yeah, I would say that the faith, his faith was never destroyed by his fear. All right? Which is evident because he went back. Right, because he ended up going back. And I, I would say there's a reason why, the, why they would keep have this here. So that we could be encouraged. You know what? We're fearful people. And weak. And maybe, maybe one of us at some point facing persecution ran in fear, but then realized, where am I going to go? (laughs) And coming back to understanding our faith, we go back and face the fire. And so, Moses is like us, a weak, fearful man who God used mightily because he didn't lose his faith. So that's how I would interpret this. Seeing the whole event of leaving, it says, it says he endured. Notice that phrase, he endured. He, he stayed under, hupomeno, he stayed under. He didn't... He didn't abandon his faith in God or his faith in the promises of God, but they, but he had uh, a period of time where he was in Midian for 40 years because the timing for the Exodus was not yet. But during this enduring, he maintained his faith. And then seeing him as who was unseen. Now, interesting for the, the story of Moses, he saw eventually a, he sees a theophany, the burning bush, and then we have this kicks in the story of the Exodus. Well, we've got a couple of minutes. Why don't we do a couple of verses? Um, 
Kath, you want to do a verse? How about what, what do I have here? 1 Timothy 1.17. Let's see what that says. Just go ahead and read it when you can. Now to the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I see the point is invisible. <coughs> invisible. That's the key point there. So, no man has seen God, not in his full essence, but we see Christ by, through the eyes of faith. And um, I have one more. Somebody want to do uh, 1 Peter 1 8? How about Norm? Do you want to do 1 Peter 1 8? Whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full glory and full of glory so there's a guy that I disagree with who wrote a book that says seeing is believing and isn't that wrong yeah and his seeing is this cataphatic you know Jesus appears in his subconscious mind and talks to him no the title's wrong the Bible says believing is seeing all right, and so if all the great saints believed what they had seen, and faith is the evidence of things not seen, how are you, how is having a mental image of Jesus come to life in your subconscious mind, seeing Jesus, and how do you know it's really Jesus? Too much pepperoni. All right. Anyhow, that's it for the Sunday school. We'll start.